Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics, which is a show about comics, but doesn't have kids on it, because now you're not a kid anymore. I, 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 it depends on prices. <laughs> For a comment. <laughs> I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm Michael Leyland. And today we start off the episode with more presents! Yep. Another wow. week, another present. This is becoming absolutely fantastic, isn't it? Today's present is from the mighty Bob Fisher, mm-hmm. who sent a lovely little card yeah. with Superman on the front. George Reeves, Superman. Absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic. I had the distinct pleasure of talking to Mr. Bob Fisher on a Back to the Bin special about the adventures of Superman TV show. So if you've got four and a half hours to spur, go and listen to that episode. It was a good one. Was it? We were very good. Okay. Michael Bailey was on it. He was very good. Paul Pizarro yeah. was on it. He was excellent. Bob was on it. He was fantastic. And I was just kind of the... Alright, okay. Yeah. Were you mediocre? Yeah, I was mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was showing my ignorance. <laughs> so this show was from the 50s? Or? So, uh, anyway, his, his letter, which is lovely, says, Andy, here's one you expected and some you didn't. And a couple just for fun. I heard you guys will read anything. Bob. Well, that's very nice. That's very. I always keep these notes. You do. That people send me because I'm always. I'm always very touched when people um, send me handwritten notes. I think that's very special to send handwritten notes in this day of internet paraphernalia mm-hmm. and technology. Technology. It is very nice to receive a, a handwritten note. So, what he sent me, the one I expected, was DC Comics presents issue twenty six. I had a first book conversation. Did you? Yes. Where I, I threw out a question. To our lovely friends across the ditch. Seeing if you were to give me a present the other day. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. No, what I said was, why was DC Comics Presents 26 so expensive still? Right. Because in the 50p bins to the day, mm-hmm. to the day is a relative term, obviously. Yeah. But the last time I was at a mart, rolls, bundles of comics, DC Comics Presents. I'd run out of money at that point Yeah. when I found them, so I was a bit miffed about that. But no 26. Okay. So I put it out there, why is it... And, couple of people said, I got in the 50 cents bin! And those people, I took pictures of them and threw darts at them. <laughs> That's what I did. But then a couple of people got in touch and, and actually said, no, it's becoming a $25, $30 book for some reason. Presumably because of the new Teen Titans 16-page mm. preview. And Bob Fisher did Facebook me and said, I've got three copies of that, do you want one? Fair enough. And I went, God, okay. So he gave me this $30 book for free. Oh, I was, it's very nice of him so it completes my Jim Starlin DC Comics Presents run so thank you very much for that Bob I really do appreciate it because this is an expensive comic over here for reasons known only to to whoever decides these things Rich However, Johnson yes Rich Johnson yes get it on eBay flip it <laughs> quick screw all your fellow fans fortunately real people aren't like him ah. and there are people like Bob in the world 
who will send me a $30 comic for free to prove to my cynical, cold, rock-hard heart <laughs> that there are still decent people in the world. Yeah, but that one he gave you for free, the other one he did put on eBay. And <laughs> I don't care if he gave me that for free. <laughs> if he made some money out of it as well, fair play to the guy. But also, he sent me for your eyes only, number one, the adaptation of the Marvel Comics series, which is awesome, because I don't have that. You know the problem with this comic book? Go on. Howard Shakin drew it, which right. is not a problem. Right. Howard Shakin drew in it is a very good thing. Okay. Vinnie Coletta inked it. What is the worst combination of art-wise you can think? Let's put great artist Howard Chaikin with Vinnie Coletta. He sent me a copy of Night Force number one by Gene Colon and Marv Wolfen, which I've never read. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay. very interested in reading that. He sent me Batman Judge Dread Vendetta in Gotham, which is a bookshelf edition, which mm-hmm. I've never read. I've got the other one. Is the other one Judgment in Gotham? I have no idea. It's on the bookshelf somewhere, isn't it? So I've uh, got uh, Judgment in Gotham. And they're both in the deluxe version now. I don't, yeah, they've all been reprinted, but yeah, I, don't, I don't have this one. Yeah, yeah. And I've never read this one. I, so. I remember reading the other one a while ago and not thinking it was all that great. No, I didn't think the first one was that great, but apparently that one's a good one. Because oh, well, it's written them. by Grant and Wagner. So that, that's, that's quite promising. And he also sent me two that I've got. I've got Spider-Man and Batman by right. DeMatteis and Bagley. And Marvel fan for number one. With his permission, I've said I will either give him away on the show... Yeah. To the first person that says, I want Marvel fan for number one or Spider-Man and Batman. Uh, or, because we'll pay it forward. Yeah. Because that's what we're like. Or, if nobody takes me up on that, I will donate them to the children's library around the corner. We, we know what we should have a competition. Should we? Yeah. What, to win Marvel fan for number one and Superman and Batman? Yeah. Spider-Man and Batman, sorry. Yeah. And what would this competition be, pray tell? I don't know. Excellent. Let's go, let's go to the question. So, in true, in true um, Hey Kids Comics fashion, you've come up with an idea that is half-baked, ill-considered, ill-conceived, and not very well thought through, and left me to do all the heavy lifting. Yeah. <laughs> Usually the other way around. And thus, that's your role in the show. Yeah, yeah. In what way is it the other way around? What heavy lifting have you done this week, eh? I had to get down my heavy comic boxes because of your... For like, one comic? Six. Seven. Yeah, that's for next week. Yeah. And so that was that was considered a week's work for you, was it? I, I you would work say shy so fop. The life of a student the, in hard You're life. a work shy fop, aren't you? I want to say I'm shy. I'm half asleep when I'm working. <laughs> anyway, should we should we should we say thank you to Bob? Yeah, thank you, Bob. That was lovely. Thank you very much. And uh, move on to emails. Mm-hmm. Our first email is a supersized Silver Age episode feedback, which is feedback about our Silver Age episodes. Which seems such a long time ago. Is it a feedback about supersized Silver Age, or is it a supersized feedback about it's Silver It's a supersized Age? feedback, because the episodes were just standard lengths. Fair I don't think we did any epic length Silver Age episodes. Like everything else we do, they were mediocre. Yes, yeah, well, you know, if you strive for mediocrity, you can never you're fail. never disappointed in yourself, are you? Yeah, and it doesn't get any lower (laughs) than on the floor. We can't do the limbo rot like that. We step over it. No, as long as you don't touch it, it counts. Oh yeah. Oh, do you know what else? Even have you seen the Fantastic Four film announcements and such? Kind of rapidly losing interest in that film. Also, anyway, uh, so much fun comics from this era opens the email from Kyle Benning. Because I don't believe I mentioned it was from... I think I went off on a tangent this week before I even yeah. mentioned who it was from. I agree, for the most part, with your breakdown of the time frame of the Silver Age. I think it varies a little bit by property and company. I would say Fantastic Four 1 kicked off the Silver Age for Marvel, and would also agree that Fantastic Four 102 marked the end of the Silver Age. This would be September 1970, which included issues like Iron Man... 
129, Daredevil 68, Captain America 129, Thor 180, and Amazing Spider-Man 188. DC is a little more difficult. I would agree with your analysis of Daniel O'Neill and Neil Adams for Green Arrow and Green Lantern, but some of the major players at DC have their own distinct point at which the character changed directions and made the jump from silver to bronze age. For Batman, I think this point is Batman 224, which marked the beginning of O'Neill's run, writing the Batman title with covers by Adams. For Superman, I would say this point occurred at Superman 233, another Denny O'Neill penned tame, tale sorry, featuring the famous Adams cover which hit stands in November of 1970. This is within a few months of Jack Kirby taking over another Superman-themed book, Jimmy Olsen. Yeah, see, the, the ages are very ill-defined, I think, which is why I created my own. <laughs> I have no truck with what other people think. My age ends here, and I'm sticking with it. Great picks for your first Silver Age episode. I love both issues. This early Silver Age Flash stuff is some of Infantino's finest art. I first read Avengers 4, courtesy of the Avengers King Size Special Issue 3 from 1969, which reprints Avengers 4 as well as the Cap stories from Tales of Suspense 66 to 68. Captain America is my second favourite character, being just edged out by Superman. And speaking of favourite characters, my favourite superhero team of all time is the Fantastic Four. So I'd love to listen to your Fantastic Cast. And you can find it on fantasticast.libson.com. Kyle continues, I have less to say on episode two, a fantastic episode, but recounting two stories that I haven't yet read. One thing I will point you to is last week's Deadpool issue 20. I presume it was last week when Kyle wrote this email. Yeah. Which stars the return of Mangog, a beautiful Kirby homage. The return of Mangog in a Deadpool comic. I get the feeling that wasn't played entirely straight. No, I can't. I, I can't think why I would have that opinion. Silver Age Batman episode, so much fun. Thank you, Kat. This issue perfectly personifies why I like this era of Batman. It's a blast from the past and a great look at sci-fi Batman. I love the Brave and the Bold TV series, which really capitalises on the Silver Age and early Bronze Age Batman fun. You mentioned that he's not brooding or stewing over his parents' death, which is a take I prefer. I get that the Wayne's death changed Bruce and obviously shaped him to the point of taking up the cowl and becoming the Dark Knight, but in my opinion, that's where it should end. It's an important character-defining point and started his destiny as Batman, but shouldn't it eventually come to an end? Eventually, many kids these days grow up losing both parents, and yes, it's traumatising, but 30-odd years, they should be over it, and it should no longer dwell on it constantly. Batman doing so only gives credence to the argument that Batman is insane, as only a mentally and emotionally crippled person would continue to have every moment of their life defined by one five-second moment over 30 seconds. Over 30 seconds ago. <laughs> over 30 years ago. I do apologise, I screwed up the email there. I love these old Silver Surfer issues, but holy moly, are they inconsistent. At times, it's some of Stan's finest writing, and at other times, some of his worst and most lacklustre. The Bessema art is always top-notch, though. The introduction of Mephisto will always be my favourite of these classic Silver Surfer tales. Which we almost did. did we? we almost did that one. And at last, the fourth and final episode of your Silver Age saga. You saved the best for last, covering the first and greatest superhero of all time, Superman in the Silver Age. I have these stories courtesy of the DC Showcase Presents volumes, and while I agree that many of the stories are downright silly imaginary tales, with some of those being almost painful to slug through, I still love these tales and this era. There's so much fun and innocence in this era of Superman comics that it just makes me warm and fuzzy reading these. Obviously, I'm no way looking at these issues objectively and purely blinded by the nostalgia these offer, but man do I love these. I can't wait to work myself through these volumes again as I read them to my future child. My wife is about five months pregnant with our first child, and I think these will be perfect stories to introduce them to Superman and the comics medium, reading these old tales from every night from age two. 
Don't judge a book by its cover certainly applies to the Superman books, as the Silver Age Superman stories certainly portray him as a jerk, usually at expense of Lois. For some reason, the Superman books of the time insisted on having covers whereon character emotionally tortures and ridicules their supposed friend, with the story inside telling a completely different story. Well, I think I take from that, first of all, is congratulations on the impending birth of your child, Kyle and Mrs. Kyle. Hope everything goes alright. Another great set of episodes, guys. I know I'm one of your newer listeners, but I'm hooked. Well, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Kyle. We're glad you are enjoying our inane ramblings and scripted ad libs. <laughs> our next email is from David May. Hey, guys, love the discussion on Slam Bradley. Film noir is a genre I really enjoy, so it seems like something I would enjoy reading. I may have to go and pick this up. As for your discussing making the show bi weekly or monthly, I only have one thing to say to that. No! What's wrong with these people? Don't they know the show is podcasting gold? Keep up the great work, David Main. P.S. All those dick jokes were tasteless, juvenile, immature, and most importantly, absolutely hilarious. <laughs> well, thank you, David. We, we appreciate that uh, you think we're podcasting gold. I wouldn't exactly say gold. Maybe silver. Maybe bronze. <laughs> Let's be honest. Maybe bronze. <laughs> Yeah, we're the kid that came in last. We 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 get and they the, gave a, a pity award too. We get those stickers with a star that says you tried. <laughs> yeah. You know the yeah. ones I got every sports day. Yeah, well, it's all right, love. You don't have to be good at sports. <laughs> I still love you. <laughs> Our next email is from Robert Ludwig. <laughs> this is also called Listening First Thing. Howdy, Andrew and Michael. Just listen to your wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey podcast about Slam Bradley. I can only say that I had never heard of him before, but that is because detective noir is generally not one of the genres I really pay attention to. However, before I go on, I must say something. Every Thursday morning after I download the episode, I get in my car for my 45-minute drive to work, and I switch off whatever I've been listening to and put on Hey Kids comics. Robert, you're that kind of guy. Your show is one I look forward to every week and one I know will be there like clockwork. I hope this makes your day and at least one person puts your show first. (laughs) One and only one. (laughs) Of the 15 listeners that we have. I've gone up since last time. No, no, it's 15. Oh yeah, I know them all. I've stalked every single one of them. I am behind on most of my other podcasts I listen to due not to being able to listen during work hours, but I always want to hear yours as soon as you put it up. Granted, I only listen to part of it during my ride in, but I always listen to the other part on my way home. In fact, today I left the episode of, and we won't say the name of that show because that would be indecorous of us, so, but we appreciate that you turned off another show to listen to ours. We, we appreciated that. Thank you very much. Anyway, continues Robert, Slam Bradley. Whilst not a series I plan to pick up in the back issue bins, it was enjoyable listening to your description of the tale. Like always, I can picture what is going on through your descriptions of the comics. I can hear how much you enjoy this character. I can't wait to hear next week's episode about the Marvel Zombies. I picked up the first series when it came out and really enjoyed it. At that time, I had a little more money than I knew now since the original series came out. My son was not yet born, so I could spend a little freer. Of course, you may be reading this email on the show after the Marvel Zombies episode goes, but hey, it's all wibbly-wobbly. Keep putting out great episodes, Robert Ludwell. Well, thank you very much, Robert. We appreciate that you listen to our show first. To be fair, Paul Spataro, Presby is now. Oh, he's not Josie Lewis Castle Lopez, is he? I still praise his name. He got in touch as well and said, I listen to your show first as well. So So there's two of our 15 listeners. (laughs) 
that felt the need to uh, ease my bruised ego. Yeah. And I do appreciate that. Cause Someone's trying. Yeah, somebody's trying to ego. ease my bruised ego. Because certainly you lot don't give a rat's ass, do you? Why would we? It's funny. That's true. Our next email, um, after this one, I think we'll... Should we call it a day after this one tonight? Okay. Is from Michael Bradley, who has got in touch to say that... He never meant to imply you would pick books to simply tear them apart, or you weren't furring your love of them, only that, generally speaking, DC's Silver Age output typically is not looked as being serious or well done. When I began your episodes, I assumed your final verdict would be much the same, but was pleasantly surprised the DC books, at least the Flash and the Green Lantern issues, came out more favourably. Keep up the great work, Michael. P.S. Slam Bradley is awesome. Slam Bradley is indeed awesome, mm-hmm. as is the Superman and Batman podcast available on CratedCrypton.com that Michael Bradley hosts. That was good, I see what did you, you Did you like that? Yeah. Did, you, did you think that was good? It's a very good show, that. I like that one a lot. Uh, now, that was a short one. Should we squeeze another one in? Yeah, okay. W. Blendowl has been in touch to tell us that the Canadian prices in 1982 were... 60 US cents or 25 pence which is what they were for us but Michael wondered about the Canadian cover price all Marvel comics with a 60 cents US cover price were 75 cents Canadian however W. Blaine can't figure out why the 9 cent issue of Fantastic Four was just added to Comixology for $1.99 that's inflation for you. Mm-hmm. That's quite shocking. Blaine's email was very short. We're cruising through a couple of short ones at the minute, aren't we? Which is, uh, which is convenient for us. So let's go to Bobby Coakley, who says, Identity questions, continuity shifts, and Katrina Law. Ooh, I like a bit of Katrina Law. Okay. Uh, she's in Spartacus. All right, okay. When your first scene in Spartacus involves you taking off all of your clothes. I'm a fan of you. Unless you're, you're a man. You're a fan of an awful lot of people. <laughs> First scene in the show. Oh. <laughs> oh, dear me. Anyway, Bobby Coakley says, Hello, Leylands. The following email covers three subjects. Thor and Don Blake, the original Jim Kirk, a new Jim Kirk, and Nissa Al Ghul and Katrina Law. Your look at a Silver Age Thor comic brings up questions that have never been properly answered. Is Donald Blake his own man, even a man created by Odin? Or is he Thor in mortal body with American speech patterns? Sometimes it's clear and sometimes it isn't. Stories that say Don Blake is in love with Jane Foster while Thor is in love with Sif don't help matters. Now, I thought we, the, the issue of Thor cleared up that Don Blake was a construct of Odin or something? Or am I misremembering now? I when I read the Straczynski one, he was his own person. Was he? Yeah. Maybe that's what Bobby's talking about, and it's just very confusing. And best not to dwell on such matters. You were talking about the popular opinion of Star Trek Captain Kirk compared to the actual Jim Kirk from the TV series, continues Bobby. In the case of the new movies, New Kirk wasn't raised by George Kirk. Also, New Kirk did not go through the purge on Tarsus Four as a boy, original series episode The Conscience of the King, or the attack on the USS Farragut by the blood-sucking mist creature, the episode Obsession. The lack of these events would affect New Kirk's personality. New Kirk is also a full-on playboy, while classic Kirk was more of a flirt. Which kind of goes back to our brief discussion about the Fantastic Four movie. Yeah. At what point, then, are you not actually writing about the character that you're supposed to be writing about, but a completely different character who happens have to have the, the same, same name? name yeah. Don't have an answer to that one, do I? No. No. So, you know. That's, that's what was my, my main problem with it. That they have the same name, they even have the same mannerisms occasionally. But it's not the same person. But it's not the same. Dr. McCoy seems pretty much the same. But yeah. that's because Carl Urban is... Awesome. Funny note, the Tarsus Four Purge was done by Kodos, which is the name of the green tentacle aliens that show up on The Simpsons from time to time. The other one being Kang. Yeah. 
Gang and Coda. You mentioned the Spartacus TV series which featured Katrina Law. Law is going to guest star on the WB's Arrow TV series as Nissa Al Ghul, the other daughter of Raish Al Ghul, or Raz. Yes. The other daughter of Raz Al Ghul. Law will be the third Spartacus actor to guest star on Arrow. In Batman Death and the Maidens and Batgirl Destruction's Daughter, Nissa believes the best way to end society's apathy is by killing all superheroes. Talia, in The Dark Knight Rises, is much closer in personality and motives to Nissa, thinking that destroying Gotham City will improve the Western world. Somehow. But me rambling about The Dark Knight Rises would take pages. Keep up the good work, Bobby Coakley. I'm just happy to see Katrina Law. Hopefully we'll see as much of her as we did in Spartacus. Probably not an arrow. One would imagine that that would not be the case Top, topless arrow. men, but where are the topless men? I know, that show is so sexist! It is, yeah. Isn't it? Equal rights! <laughs> That's what I demand. Maleism. Yeah! <laughs> Indeed. Uh, break, I uh, think. Okay. We shall have a break, and then we'll be right back with part four of our celebration of the Joker's 74th birthday. Oh, what were you expecting from me? A round number? TV shows are cancelled every year. For some, it's too soon, while others are not quick enough. Join the Dead Television Society as we review TV shows that you, the listener, suggest. The only thing is that the shows are, well, dead. Find us on iTunes or at deadtelevisionsociety.com to see which shows get dug up next. stars approaching the red carpet and he's in black always chic but here come the fashion disasters I'm surprised their mummies let them out of the house looking like that well you're breaking an old man's heart kids stand up to them like I would if I were there and if I had superpowers and Oh, for Pete's sake, go back there and beat on them! The Joker changed significantly over the 1990s. Jack Nicholson managed to elevate a passable movie by the sheer force of his charismatic performance in Batman, opposite Michael Keaton as the caped crusader, and forever banished the idea of the Joker as a harmless clown. This time period also saw the end of a certain kind of Joker. Following the return of the, to the character's roots by O'Neill and Adams, the schizophrenic 70s still saw a number of different Jokers, still homicidal, but also still rather whimsical. The Joker series of the 70s saw him kill very few people, rather engaging in bizarre adventures. Throughout the 80s, after appearing in the final post-crisis issue, Batman number 400, which Michael Bailey and I covered on an episode of Bailey's Batman podcast, he evolved further, becoming more of a murderous psychopath. Into the 90s, the Joker became even more of a crazed killer, with some writers seemingly incapable of writing a Joker story without a massive body count. Extant to the comics, the 90s Batman animated series saw a more realised, more fleshed out, and probably the most faithful version of the character ever. The producers of that show managed to keep the Joker as murderous sociopath, despite the broadcast standards ruling that the Joker couldn't kill anyone while still injecting elements of humour. This humour became increasingly black as the series progressed. 
largely the success of the character in this film is down to the casting of Mark Hamill as Mr. J. A performance so magnificent, so career-defining, so definitive, it has become practically impossible to accept others in the role. Some that have followed Hamill have even opted to impersonate him and be done with it. Hamill's success is even more remarkable when you consider that he was a last-minute replacement for Tim Curry, who had recorded a number of episodes already before it was decided he just wasn't working out. I'd love to hear the soundtrack of those early Joker episodes just to hear what Curry was doing with it. The producers even managed to add depth to the Joker's abusive personality by giving him a relationship in the shape of one of the greatest additions to the Joker mythos, Harley Quinn, the ditzy, much-put-upon loyal companion to the Joker. Hamill was, of course, primarily known as Luke Skywalker, but genre and comics fans knew the guy had previous form playing the Flash's arch-enemy the Trickster in two episodes of the 90s TV series where he essentially honed his Joker act. The Trickster even had a prototype version of Harley Quinn in the shapely form of Prank in his second TV appearance. Hamill managed to parlay this performance into two of the best Batman-Joker confrontations ever seen outside of the comics, portraying the kind of Joker live-action could only dream of in two animated movies, Mask of the Phantasm, for my money still the best Batman movie ever made, and Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, where the clown prince really manages to hit Batman where it hurts. It's arguably this time period where the Joker really became the Batman's greatest foe. In addition to the movies and the animated series giving Joker high profile. In the comics, the macabre Master of Mirth was preparing for his greatest triumphs. In A Death in the Family, a four-part story arc running through the main Batman title, the Joker managed to kill Robin. Granted, it was the obnoxious Mark II Robin, Jason Todd, but still the Joker had managed to take it to another level. His encore performance was then to cripple and sexually humiliate former Batgirl Barbara Gordon and physically abuse Commissioner Gordon in The Killing Joke. Comics ain't just for kids, kids. In one of the best long-form Batman stories ever told, No Man's Land, the Joker is a commanding presence, his goings-on dominating the thoughts of many of the characters, despite not being on panel for over two-thirds of the action. When he does show up, planning to murder every child born during the year-long storyline and thus eliminating all hope from Gotham City, he manages to murder Sarah Essen, Commissioner Gordon's wife. It's arguable that at this point, Commissioner Gordon has more reasons to hate the Joker than the Batman does. So, to celebrate the Joker's evolution, this week three tales from this time period. One issue of The Batman Adventures, a hugely underrated series that was, for a time, publishing some of the best Batman comics of the era, but was criminally ignored because it wasn't a regular Bat book. Then, two of Michael's picks of his favourite Joker stories, one showing the influence of the animated series, the other part of an epic long-form story by one of comics' most influential writers. The Batman Adventures issue 28, 12 Days of Madness, covered dated January 1995, was written by Kelly Puckett, with art by Mike Parabek and Rick Burchette. It was lettered by Richard Starkings and coloured by Rick Taylor. The cover by Parabek and Burchette has Harley Quinn daydreaming of her and Mr. J toasting the Batman over an open fire. It's typical of the kind of funny but dark cover this series specialised in and Parabek's clean art style is magnificent. What do you think of that cover, Michael? It's fine enough. It's fine? Enough. Is that all you have to... Are you, if you're going to be dissing on Parabet, you can be getting out now. I'm not. There's not much to it, is there? But therein lies its genius. Its okay. simplicity is what makes it magnificent. Batman roasting on an open fire. It's Christmas. Okay. See? You wouldn't know from that cover that this was a Christmas story, would you? 
No. Although then, you know, Batman roasting on an open fire. His chestnuts dripping in your nose. Because he's upside down, so... Oh, oh, okay. You get me? What are they doing on his chest? <laughs> well, he's upside down, so he's, he's you know, his, his chestnuts are at first level. Oh, that's... all I'm... Right. Okay. Is all I'm willing to say. <clears throat> Whilst the Joker is cooling his heels in Arkham, rehearsing for the Christmas show, he and Harley Quinn devise a cunning plan. The next day, Bud Jones, the senator in charge of a gun control rally, goes wild, shooting up the arena where the rally is to take place. The Batman stops him but realises something doesn't add up. Commissioner Gordon tells him that Jones was in perfect health, mentally and physically, and that he was the seventh such victim in 48 hours. Four remaining councilmen remain under the supervision, as Gordon has deduced that they are targeted in descending order of weight. At Arkham, Dr. Heinrich Hemlich from the Dusseldorf Institute has taken an interest in Bud Jones, saying he will be cured within the week. But whilst he's here, is there any chance he could see the Joker? For in Dusseldorf, they have developed new techniques that may cure the Joker's particular brand of psychosis. Strangely, Heimlich draws a heart on the Joker's cell door with HQ and J written within. The Batman's investigations lead him to conclude that all the councilmen had an appointment with Dr. Heimlich 24 hours before going insane. Putting forth his hypothesis at Arkham, Heimlich counters that the Batman's obsession with the Joker has clouded his reason. The Joker is an angel, possessed of luscious lips, gorgeous eyes, and a stunningly handsome visage. And to the surprise of all, Heimlich kisses Joker smack on the lips, only to have his moustache stick to the Joker's face. To the surprise of no one, Heimlich is Harley Quinn. The Joker and Harley make a break for it, distracting the Batman with drugged castmates, who the Batman dispatches with alacrity. The Joker hurls the vial of liquid he used on the castmates and the counsellors, but realises he really doesn't want to face a psychotic Batman. Harley throws herself in front of the vial and spends her Christmas in a cell in Arkham, deluded and alone. We felt a bit sorry for Harley. Um, this comic is structured in three acts, all with different titles. Act 1 is What Child Is This?, Act 2 is God Rest Ye Psycho Councilman, and Act 3 is Asylum Fidelis. All references to Christmas carols. Okay. Excellent splash of Harley listening to Blue Christmas, and packing crazy candy canes, all with a K, for the Joker. The only negative to this issue is the lettering. This was the time period where computers were increasingly being used for lettering and colouring, but the technology wasn't quite there yet. Placing the letters using a computer rather than actually lettering the R reveals the limitations. The angling isn't quite right or the font doesn't quite match up. It was amusing that the candy canes were made of solid steel, which is a sight gag that pays off later on in the issue. Mm. What do you think about the, the lettering? I don't know, I didn't notice it. Did you not, do you not think it looks stuck on? On that box, yeah. And I, I thought it was like that a couple of times throughout the issue. Like the crazy candy canes is bleeding off the edge of the box a little bit into yeah. the margin. And it's like Richard Starkins has just discovered comic lettering on a computer. But it, it's not quite there yet. The gun control rally banner on page three as well. Look at the lettering there. And it changes it's, onto the next one. Yeah, it's not right, is it? No. It's something the computer in the computer lettering just wasn't up to it yet. In Arkham, I like that the Joker changes the lyrics to Jingle Bells, which may be a nod to the TV episode Christmas with the Joker. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not. What I want to know is uh, why he's just casually on the phone to Harley. Does he just let the inmates onto the phone to whoever they want? Apparently. 
Apparently, yes. No wonder all the criminals keep escaping. Apparently, they just let the joke have telephone privileges yeah. whenever he wants. But well, the thing I love about that as well is somebody must have dialed it for him. Yeah. Because he's in a, st- a straitjacket. So somebody's dialed Harley Quinn for the Joker. Maybe this is he's allowed one phone call. Maybe he's allowed to phone Harley. I don't know. I don't know what the rules are in, a, in an he's, asylum for the insane. He's allowed to carry out his plan that could involve him breaking out. <laughs> and killing people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Arkham just think he's misunderstood. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't they? Yeah. They don't think he's a crazed madman. He's just a little bit left of centre. <laughs> That's all it is. The action beats on pages two through five at the gun control rally are magnificent. Parabrek draws a Batman that doesn't speak at all, just concentrates on the mission at hand. I also adored that Batman takes out Jones and then just looks at the gun control picture with Jones's face on it. There doesn't need to be any dialogue to know what the Batman is thinking. Why has a gun control advocate just shot up his own rally? Compare that to what you were complaining about in Joker's Five-Way Revenge, where Bigger Melvin escapes. I'm going to go through this pipe, (laughs) then over this fence, then under the docks, then over this car, then underneath, then slide through this nun's pants, and then up here, and down there, and here I am. Oh, there's Batman. We're going on a bear hunt in Gotham. (laughs) We're going on a bear hunt. (laughs) Oh no, the sewers can go over it. So one would imagine then, that given your complaint of that overly verbose series of panels, two pages here of the Batman just being awesome mm. and not saying a word would have been right up your back passage. No, I really like this. He gets it done quickly and in one punch. Mm. It's brilliant. It's also magnificently drawn. Mm. The artwork is absolutely gorgeous. I love a Batman that doesn't talk. Yeah. You know, I don't mind the, the Bronze Age Batman who's a little bit of a chatty Cathy. Especially when he's, you know, I've just got knocked out three times in one <laughs> issue. This isn't good. But this was just glorious. Mm. I love Mike Parabek. Harley's impersonation of Dr. Heimlich <laughs> is hysterical. And I think calls for a dramatic reading. Does it? Yes, because we have not done a dramatic reading for some considerable time. As I suspected, yeah, I will stay here and see to this patient myself. He will be completely good in one week, or my name isn't Heinrich Heimlich. I will, of course, require the use of your office, her doctor. Come on, that's genius. It was pretty funny. That's comedy gold. The Joker would be a perfect test subject. We have developed new techniques in Dusseldorf, yeah. Exactly his particular psychosis. <laughs> I don't know how anyone would not fall for that accent. Oh, no, no, it's very blue. I think they would totally buy into it. Oh, psychosis, yeah. <laughs> and I love up the top, though, she says, very interesting, which is a Rowan and Martin's laughing gag. Okay. For people that are old. <laughs> I only know that because it got referenced lots of time in old comics. Okay. I'm not old yeah. enough to remember Rowan and Martin's laughing. Okay. Sock it to me. Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <clears throat> Love Parabek's depictions of the politicians. All deliberately bland and boringly handsome. Hmm. Aren't they? In fact, the blonde one, who uh, at the gun control rally, Bud Jones. Do you not think he looks like human target? What was his name? Mark Valley. Don't know. Do you not think? He was in Boston Legal as well, and he did loads of stuff. ER and all that kind of thing. You know he looks like? You know, Barry Allen? He does look a little bit like Barry Allen. A bit more square-jawed yeah. than Barry Allen. But, yeah, all right. Bland, boring, handsome <laughs> politician. Fair enough. I'm going to say politicians are handsome. Page 13. I absolutely loved that the Joker looks at Harley like she's the insane one. 
when it's revealed that she made the appointments with the victims. Which I thought was genuinely amusing. That he gives her that facial expression of like, you made appointments with them? Do you not realise that's a pretty big clue? Again, Batman locates the councilmen and the trail leads to Harley Quinn in two pages of complete silence. Mm -hmm. For some reason, this councilman starts frothing at the mouth and turns into a chicken. Doesn't he look like he's going... A little bit, yeah. It does look like that. And again, Batman says nothing. Absolutely nothing. But the Heimlich thing at Arkham gives it all away. Mm. I love that. You made an appointment with them? Don't worry, Mr. J. I can handle him. Dialogue's good. Dialogue's really good in this issue. Parabek's facial expressions when Heimlich kisses the Joker are hysterical. Because look at her face as it just goes, ah, he's lovely. lovely." And what's even better, which shows what a great artist he is, even though she's wearing glasses, big bushy eyebrows, and a bald cap wig, that's Harley Quinn. Mm. So the minute she loses the moustache, she looks just like Harley, even through the disguise. I like the Joker's facial uh, yeah. expression. <laughs> Where he's got the moustache stuck to his bottom yeah. lip, and he's just like, oh, here we go. <laughs> Very funny. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, page 16, Harley pulls the old Bronze Age trick of just pulling off her wig, and suddenly she's in full Harley Quinn regalia. Mm-hmm. I love that. She has a pillow under a gown to make her look a little bit fatter. Yeah. Very clever disguise, Harley. I don't know why people didn't see through it. <laughs> uh, the action-based... Based? The action-based conclusion where the Batman must fight the castmates all psychofied by the toxin has them all singing the 12 Days of Christmas, appropriate given the title, which is another great sequence of panels. But it's the final confrontation that actually makes this issue. The Joker throws the psycho drug at Batman, and the Batman just stands there and asks, Do you really want to face me, psychotic? Which is the high point of the issue. I really love the issue, sorry. I really love the little smile Parragate gives Batman as he says that. Like, you know, this won't end up well for you. It's like the bit in the opening credits where he looks all angry and this time he's all happy. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Of course, it ignores the fact that this vial seems to move in slow motion. Yeah. Because he's tossed it at Batman, and then suddenly he's got time to have this conversation with him, and then the Joker to speak to Harley and say, Harley, catch that vial! And Harley go, yeah, okay, and intercept it. And it turns her into a little bit of a psychotic in a span of seconds. Mm. Unless Batman was much further across the room... Yeah. Then you think he's going to be... Maybe, yeah, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> that works. Yeah. <laughs> All right, fair enough. As with a lot of issues of the Batman adventures, the ending is bittersweet with the doctors pointing out that Harley is probably always going to be deluded. Oh, it's quite a sad ending, wasn't it? They did this a lot in Batman adventures. Had very sad endings to what were largely what you thought were going to be little fluffy action pieces. What do you think of this one? I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty funny. I didn't... What, what was the Joker and Harley's plan? Was it to just have a little fun, or did he actually plan on getting out of Arkham at some point? Do you know, I don't really know. <laughs> She's brought into Arkham to watch him do this Christmas play, and he's he's drugging a lot of politicians, but there doesn't actually seem to be a Did plan. Did on a play? Yeah, maybe. I just loved that for once the Joker wasn't on a murderous killing spree. Yeah. It was just, it's Christmas, you know. Even the Joker takes some time off at Christmas. So I I thought it was grand. I thought this was a lovely issue. Uh, the importance of the animated series on the Batman mythos cannot be overstated. 
It is probably the single best distillation of all the myriad aspects of the comics into a cohesive whole ever done, and may be the definitive version of that character and his rogues. It's what the new 52 should have done, a complete ground zero retelling of everything that makes the characters great, using the bits that worked and discarding the bits that didn't, whilst adding to the legend. In the Joker's case, this led to the addition of Harley Quinn, and the abusive relationship between Sane was exploited for both drama and humour over the course of the series. This story is really a Harley Quinn story, detailing her obsession with Mr. J and the lengths she will go to to please him, no matter the cost to herself. In turn, this led to a wonderful relationship between Harley and Poison Ivy, whereby Ivy sees what a doormat the Joker treats Harley like and tries to intervene, but Harley's love of Mr. J is a many-splendid thing. The comic itself was originally only supposed to be a six-issue miniseries to cash in on the TV show, but became, when Puckett and Parabek came aboard as the creative team, one of the finest Batman comics ever published. This issue is no exception. The drama is dramatic, the humour genuinely funny. Parabek's art elevates Puckett's script, and Puckett, knowing the abilities of his artist, leaves vast swathes of the story to him. There is no other word to describe this comic other than, as I said earlier, lovely. Mike Parabek passed away on July 2nd, 1996, just five days short of his 31st birthday. Throughout the early 90s, the image of comics, Parabek's crisp, clean, almost cartoony style was a breath of fresh air in an era of giant thighs, tiny feet, and over-rendered cross-hatching. He is sorely missed. Next, the first of two picks from Michael. Uh, and another Christmas issue. Following the animated series, story editor and chief writer Paul Dini was asked to script a few issues of various different Batman animated projects before being invited to contribute to DC Comics proper. In the mid-noughties, Dini was given detective comics whilst Grant Morrison was working on Batman. Morrison was telling a sprawling, epic-length, years-long story, so Dini went in the other direction, crafting lean, one-and-two-part stories, most of which were great, some of which were excellent. This is an excellent one. Detective Comics issue 826, cover dated February 2007, has a black and white cover by Simone Bianchi of the Joker at the wheel of a car and careening through the streets, pointing a gun at Robin who is tied up in the passenger seat. The Joker's sadistic grin is out in full force and the only colour, being the red logo, makes the cover art really pop. Why did you pick this one? Uh, I remember liking it more than anything. Back when I was reading through the Batman comics from Nightfall up until now yeah this was one of the ones that I remembered and I just remembered liking it so the fact that it was distinctly memorable yeah is what made you think that's a Joker story worth covering mm-hmm. well, I, remember, I remember it ending differently when I reread it for the show I remembered it ending differently than how it actually did how do you remember it ending I remember it ending with Joker actually letting Robin go alright Okay. Don't know where that came from, but yeah. I, to be honest, I kind of preferred that ending. What, this one? Oh, Joker the, letting the, him go? The one that I made up. Alright, okay. Well, sometimes your making up's better, isn't it? In addition to Dini writing, Don Kramer and Wayne Foucher penciled, and because this is a modern comic, a shed load of other people are involved, and I can't be bothered mentioning who they were. Professional. Yeah, there's tons of them. When a bust on kid supplying gun runners goes awry, Robin is offered assistance from the speeding bullets by a kindly driver, who turns out to be the Joker. A shot of gas, and for Robin, everything goes black. He awakens to a god-awful smell, his entire body bound with Christmas tree lights and no utility belt. 
The smell is quickly revealed to be the dead couple in the back. The journey, a death race style Christmas killing spree. Oops, ten points, there goes the homeless man. The Joker promises to let Robin go, as Robin feels around in the seat for toys or something to cut his bonds. Oops, twenty points, Joker nails a pretty lady out Christmas shopping. Robin finds a toy car and tries to use it as a cutting implement as, hey, 30 points, as the Joker knocks over a number of people waiting to cross the street. The Joker pulls into a drive through for an eggnog shake, but his voluminous order is wrong, so he kills the manager. He then removes the car from Robin's hand. After all, the Joker planted it as false hope. Speaking of which, there ain't no way Robin is being released. Robin manages to free a hand from his glove as the Joker removes his gag and steers toward a street-side Santa and a queue of children. The Joker wants Robin to plead for his life, and as the car slides towards the kids, the Joker asks if Robin still has nothing to say to old Santa Claus. You can't fool me, the boy wonder replies. There ain't no sanity Claus. Impressed by Robin's Marx Brothers knowledge, the Joker steers away from the kids but gets into an argument with Robin as to which Marx Brothers movie the quote is from. With the Joker on a diatribe, Robin manages to punch the clown prince in the face and uses the leverage to free himself from the lights binding him and ducks into the back seat. As an enraged Joker pursues, Robin gets a few choice blows in before finding the gas pump Joker used to knock Robin out earlier and gives it a squirt. Joker falls out of the car, beaten by his own joke, and into the street, into the path of a speeding 18-wheeler, which knocks him over the barricades to the highway below. Needless to say, when the Batman arrives, the body is nowhere to be found, but Robin can take some small comfort that he took everything the Joker threw at him and won. It's not lost on me that we've picked two Christmas stories in February. Yeah. That's two Christmas stories we can't do at Christmas. Oh, well. <laughs> We're always looking for good Christmas stories. Yeah, and two but we of, can never think of any. No, and two of the very best we covered not at Christmas. Mm-hmm. We've covered this one and the Kitty Pride X-Men. Yeah. We didn't do that at Christmas either. Oh, well, our show, our rules. <laughs> my gaff, my rules. It's Christmas every week. <laughs> Christmas every week here at Hey Kids Towers. Every week we get a present. On the it's show. Christmas, yeah. <laughs> I got a present this week, it's Christmas. Yes. Uh, fair enough. Uh, in media res beginning with Robin 3, a.k.a. Tim Drake, being pursued by gunrunners who are selling their words to kids. This is a complete MacGuffin, designed to start the story off with a bang, but ultimately proves to be irrelevant. Mm. Never mentioned again. Completely unnecessary. Nice, uh, is he wearing like a red Robin costume here? I remember Robin's costume being primarily green. This looks like black and red. It was primarily red. Are you sure? Yeah. By this point, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Is he changed his costume since the Chuck Dixon dares. Yeah. I mean, he right. wasn't Red Robin yet. No, but it looks it looks like a Red Robin-esque costume. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. Uh, I'm, I'm not so big of the art in this. Why? He looks fine when he's doing, say, Batman and Robin, but when he's doing the Joker and Tim and Dick... Do you not like all of that? No. Well, I thought I that was just right. I don't think his, his characters, his people look all that great. Right, okay, fair enough. I thought it was, I thought the art was fine. I didn't think it was outstanding. Mm. Or at least it's not that scratchy vertical stuff you normally like. Maybe that's why. <laughs> Maybe that's why you didn't <laughs> like this, yeah. <laughs> that seems fair enough. Uh, Robin's cape, we learn as bullets bounce off it, is all-purpose Kevlar, bullet and impact proof. How does Kevlar flow so well like a cape, then? I thought Kevlar was heavy. Because he's Batman. Is that your excuse for everything? Because he's the goddamn Batman. Yeah. Alright, oh, it's Rob. It's Frank Miller. So. 
The Joker showing up and rescuing Robin here is pure coincidence. Something the Joker himself mentions a few pages after he picks Robin up on page three. And I like that. I like that Dinny actually drew attention to the fact that this was just dumb luck. Is it? Because it's it said that, but if you think too much into it, because he says he only put the car under it for false hopes, who was planning on picking him up. So, he, well, he must have been planning to pick him up because he had everything prepared to pick Robin up. But then, I don't... Go on. But then, in that case... Was he watching him to be there to pick him up? See, that was the bit of this where my logic faltered as well. Yeah. If this was purely coincidental, which it seems like it is, this yeah. doesn't seem like the Joker's planned this, then that bit with the card doesn't hold up. I noticed that as well when I was reading it. But I like it like that. Because the Joker says, I planted that car there. Yeah. So that, like you say, implies that he planned on picking somebody up. Yeah. Whether it was Robin or not, we don't know. But if he was just on getaway here, mm. why did he plant the car? I, I, I like that. Why? Because it makes him that much scurrier that he planned this, but... Didn't plan it. Yeah. He, he was ready just in like, case. Well, it also implies that if he did plan it, he was, he's been watching Tim for quite a while. Mm. See, I preferred the initial randomness of it. Because... To me, a joke who meticulously plans everything yeah. is a little bit of a contradiction of his anarchic nature. Well, I, I, but, that being said, I'll let yeah. you carry on in a minute. The comics that we covered last week, he planned them meticulously. He, yeah. Dreadful birthday, dear Joker, he planned that meticulously, didn't he? Yep. Laughing Fish, that was pretty much a plan. Yep. So, yeah, okay. I just like the not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Alright. Because I think that makes the Joker that much scarier. That oh, yeah. Don't know. It doesn't matter to your enjoyment of the story. Yeah. But I do like that both of us independently, for different reasons, mm. latched upon the same thing as a logic problem. Yeah. Well, alright, if this was a random event, that doesn't make sense. Unless it's just explained as he cleaned it and planted it there when he was knocked out. Or the Joker's lying. Yeah. And he didn't plant the car there. But he spotted that Robin found it and thought, I can turn this to my advantage and, and get a psychological edge over my adversary. Yeah. That's another possibility. The Joker's just lying through his teeth. You know, the Joker's the bad guy. He doesn't have to tell the truth. Yeah. So you don't have to take everything he says as gospel. So there's lots of interpretations. <laughs> yeah, so there's lots of interpretations of it because we like the story. And therefore, we're going <laughs> to bend over backwards to make it work. Whereas if we didn't like it, we'd be like, this is terrible! <laughs> Because yes. this doesn't make sense. Well, that's, that's comic reader logic. There is a flashback on pages five and six, the only point in the story that the story doesn't progress in a linear fashion. I skipped it in the synopsis because, well, it's a synopsis, not a page-by-page -page recap. It sets up Tim watching the Marx Brothers, which does play into the conclusion. Dick is more of a Three Stooges kind of guy. Personally, I always preferred Laurel and Hardy. Anyway, I don't know what Dick, Tim and Bruce are all doing here. They seem to be at some retreat in the woods, but the Watts and the Werfalls are never explained. But they don't need to be. The scene is here merely to set up Tim's liking of the Marx Brothers and establish that Dick and Tim have discussed the Joker in the past. Was it not during 52 when they were on the world trip when mm. Bruce was going to Nanda Parbat? No idea. Never read 52, did I? Yeah. Did I? At the, at the time it was released, you did, yeah. Did I? I've completely forgotten it. Yeah, oh, okay. you did. Because right. how I, but it, it, that, that makes sense with it being yeah. that with 
the time this is set. Yeah, that, that works fine if this is in the middle of 52. In my head, they were just on some bat family team building exercise. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, all them crappy jobs. Yeah. Where you all go on team building exercises. Batman's no different. <laughs> he takes Tim and Dick and Barbara and whoever else he can find on ba- these Batman Incorporated. Yeah, on these team building exercises. <laughs> now, today we're going to talk about how you feel. <laughs> now, if everyone wants to sit in a circle and introduce yourselves. <laughs> Yes, yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> no, no, Tim, uh, we'll, we'll have the donuts later. <laughs> I do love the characterisation of the Joker in this story. He just plays with Robin, he toys with him, he sets up hope and then just removes it at mm-hmm. every stage of the game. Yeah. Which was good. It's a Joker who's thinking on his feet and making the situation work for him. And he very definitely has the upper hand for the majority of the issue. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you could argue that. Robin's escaping his dumb luck. Yeah. Because I think, as I've said, or as I've written in my notes somewhere, why does he do a, a Marx Brothers quote at that point? He doesn't know the Joker likes the Marx Brothers. Yeah. What makes him do a Marx Brothers quote at that point? Um, maybe it was just the, a joke. Or desperation. Yeah. Anything to stop him from killing that bunch of kids. Mm. But it worked. But so you can argue that at the end of the story, you took everything the Joker threw at you and succeeded. No, yeah. Robin got a bite, got lucky. Yeah, basically. Yeah, desperate luck led his way out. The Joker running over all of the people as well is darkly humorous, mainly because the Joker's doing it. He's been incredibly funny. Oh yeah. I mean, I was expecting a death race gag, but I didn't get one. I loved, he runs over the homeless guy, and then he, he pretends he's concerned. Oh my god, did you see that? That poor old man <laughs> ran right in front of me. Should we see if he's okay? And then he reverses over it. <laughs> Which is sick, and I shouldn't be laughing at it. But he's not real, so. But it was so very, very. And on the next page, we don't see him back over him. You see scary. the inside of the car, and you hear a bump, and the Joker going, oh, that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> You know the thing is that he ran over him again when he drove forward as well. Yeah, so he ran over him three times. <laughs> yeah. Poor homeless guy. We, we felt sorry for him. And this is from somebody who kills vagrants on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic ass reference. I don't really kill vagrants. To our knowledge. The scene where the Joker gets drive through was essentially hysterically funny, and I've pulled the centre pages out. Yeah, I noticed. Yeah, well, never mind. He drives up to a dri- one of those drive through clowns to make his order. And his order is hysterically funny. Mm. I'd like the big beef or heavy mustard, double pickles, three strips of bacon, make them crispy, ranch dressing on the side. Uh, sir, you'll, you'll have to talk slower. Side order of fries, also crispy. One of those fake pie thingies with the boiling hot juice inside that scalds the roof of your mouth. I love that. Uh, sir, two of your special eggnog shakes, a boy's kitty meal, and I'll pay extra for a full assortment of the toys that come with it. I love that. That was funny. It was, yeah. Compare this to... Well, well, no, I can't talk about that, because that's next week's show. I was going to say, compare this to Detective Comics number one, where the Joker wasn't funny at all. Yeah. Oh, have you read that? I've read the Detective Comics number one, yeah, for next week's show. I love that he then balls the poor woman out for not getting his order right. Yeah. And then asks to see the manager. And shoots him. And shoots him. But the fact that he doesn't even look at him, <laughs> yeah. and the expression on his face as he shoots him, mm. is like the Joker is not amused. No. This is a great comic. Good pick. Thank you. I was very impressed with it. It's a good piece of art, that, as well. Despite what you were just saying about the artwork, the expression on the Joker's face there is funny. Yeah. Well, I liked it. The Joker removes Robin's gimp ball. Does that have a proper name? A gimp it, well, ball? It's, it's a bobble. 
Oh, it is, but it is a bauble, isn't it? It's not a gimp ball. I don't know why I thought the Joker was into bondage. It's because you're perverted. Because you there is, there because is we're that. covering a yeah. Grant Morrison comic next. Ah, that, that could be. That could be, yeah, and it's still in my head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there is that. Uh, he removes it because he wants him to beg for mercy. When Robin refuses, the Joker guns the car at the queue for uh, a street-side Santa Claus. Exactly what causes Robin to respond with the Marx Brothers quote, as we mentioned, is unclear, but like we say, it could just be him grasping at straws. For the record, the Joker's right. It is a quote from A Night at the Opera. It's also a punk rock song by The Damned. Well, maybe Tim knew that and thought an argument would distract him. Yeah, well, you get that he does that bit deliberately. Yeah. You get that Tim knows that's not a quote from the big store, which is what he says it's from. Yeah. And he's goading the Joker here. So again, I suppose you could argue that Robin seizes an opportunity when he sees it. Yeah. But him just quoting the Marx Brothers was just dumb luck. Mm. So, you know, fair enough. The end, Robin gets free and relentlessly starts beating on him. And there's a brilliant line of dialogue. Don't make jokes. Just go Batman on his ass. Yeah. Like, it's the Joker. This is not the time to be funny. Mm. Just kick the crap out of him while you've got the upper hand. See, I, I like the panel where Tim hides behind the dead person. Yeah. The Joker punches, <laughs> the, Joker the, dead punches the dead person in the face. So, Robin there is essentially pulling an Arnold Schwarzenegger where he's using an innocent person yeah. to hide behind while he's getting shot up. Good, though. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy's dead. There's nothing Robin can do about that. Uh, another, the Joker falls to his death. Yeah, at the end well, of this issue. The, the truck is passing by, so maybe he just fell on the truck. It is possible he fell in the truck or on top, because that looks like... It doesn't look like it's got a roof, that truck, does it? Yeah. I mean, he did, prior to that, he got hit by an 18-wheeler, I mean, yeah, so there which is knocked him over the embankment to the, the freeway below. Yeah. But that one does look like it's got no roof, so it looks like, like maybe it's a garbage truck or something. Yeah. And he lands in it, which would explain why there's no body. So there is a get-out-of-jail-free clause there, isn't there? Yeah. Which, you know, is clever. They have if, if, if that was what they were going for. If that's, well, they're obviously not going to kill the Joker. That would be as silly as cutting his face off. And almost as silly as shoot him in the head. Yes. All of these stupid things that they would never do. Oh, no. No, no, no. An almost perfect single-issue story of a kind that was a real rarity when it was published and is even more of an aberration now. It's a tightly plotted issue with a lot of setup and payoff, some great dialogue, and a pitch-perfect Joker, funny and scurry in equal measure. The art is adequate, carrying this rather claustrophobic tale along nicely, and it's a fast-paced read that feels like a satisfying main meal rather than an unsatisfying starter. Further to something I said in a previous episode, this story ends with the Joker hit by an 18-wheeler and then hurled over an embankment. He's not presu- he's kind of missing presumed dead yeah. at the end of it, but there's no body again, and it follows that same Joker trope that we've had many times before. But this is not addressed, as far as I could determine, when the Joker next appeared in Batman 655. To add to the confusion, Batman issue 655 was published six months before this issue of Detective Comics. Yeah. Despite this issue of Detective Comics taking place before that issue of Batman. Mm. Does this make sense to you? Yeah. Wibbly wobbly. Because in that issue of Batman, the Joker gets shot in the head and thrown in a... In a Garbage. Right. Thing. Okay. So they made no effort to explain this. No. All right. Well, in that issue, that issue starts off with the Joker having mortally wounded Batman. Hmm. Not Batman, but a Batman. A Batman, not the Batman. Yeah. 
uh, whilst in the background he's got uh, he's got ki- uh, kidnapped disabled children in the Joker copter. So yeah. it, it does like start right in the middle of, of a, like, the end of another story that no, was never told. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, I said last week that if DC had seemingly killed the Joker in one story and then brought him back in another without a word, this wouldn't be tolerated by modern-day fans. Well, uh, maybe the thing with it is just that Deanie wanted to tell a Joker story and that because of what was going on in the other story, they just needed to make an excuse as to timelines. Yeah, well... I did some research on it, and people did have a hard time accepting this. Yeah. And Grant Morrison, as far as I know, you may be able to correct me, has never answered this. I mean, he doesn't play well with us anyway. No. To be fair. But he doesn't have to. The Joker missing believed to be dead at the end of a Joker story is as old as the Joker. He's been doing that pretty much from the beginning. Yeah. So I was looking at a lot of these complaints online and thinking... But it doesn't matter. Well... Especially seeing as, like you point out, the truck he's seen falling upon has no roof on the back of it. So he could have fallen in the back of that and he may have been hurt. Yeah. But we don't see a body. Well, the thing with it is what happens to the Joker in that issue of Batman is very important and will stick around until the new 52. So there is that. Whereas this is just a nice one-off Christmas story. Yeah. Because he gets shot in the head in that issue of Batman, and that's he, he stays shot in the head for the entire until the end. Until of they rebooted it and rips his face off. Yeah, yeah. So both of those things we said they will never do. Yeah, they have done. All right, fair enough. Was that your reason for picking this though? It was just very memorable. Uh, yeah, and it was. I like a Joker who's who's really scary and funny and as well. funny at yeah. the same time, which and he it, was. It's something that I've I've only really read twice. This and Death of the Family. Death of the. Yeah. Not in the. Yeah. Well, he's funny in Joker's Five Way Revenge. He is, but I can't recall any stories where he's been really scary and really funny at the same time. Return of the Joker. Batman Beyond. Mask of the Phantasm. He's, he's quite funny in Batman in 1989. Quite funny. Hmm? I think he's funny in Laughing Fish. <laughs> Especially when he turns the page for us. Yeah, he that's, that's pretty cool. He was funny, but he wasn't scary. Yeah. He was a little bit scary in Laughing Fish. He's a lot scary in Five Way Revenge when he just appears out the background yeah. and hangs Bigger Melvin by his shoelaces. <laughs> That's pretty scary, dude. In my opinion. Uh, for the most part, this, this issue was almost universally positively reviewed, but there were a couple of things online that made me roll my eyes. There always is. There always is, of course, because the internet is always wrong, <laughs> and I am the to put it right. Yeah. That's the way of things. <laughs> uh, one of the things I read was... This didn't further the Joker as a character. Right. Yeah, furthering the Joker as a character leads to him ripping his face off. So let's just keep the Joker as he is, thanks. And another was that it was only a one-issue story, so it was over much too quickly. Okay. I don't consider these criticisms to be worthy of any more talking. Was that Jeff Johns? Uh, <laughs> was that Jeff Johns complaining that Paul Dini... I can't sell this as a trade paperback. <laughs> Jeff Johns complaining that Paul Dini could construct a taut, wonderful little tale in only 23 pages. Yeah, and not six issues. <laughs> could very well have been <laughs> Jeff Johns. I doubt it. I kind of doubt that it was, it was him. Michael's next pick will probably come as no surprise to long-term listeners. 
The Clown at Midnight from Batman 663, cover dated April 2007, which has a cover by Andy Kubert, which has the Batman pretty much covered in shadow in the foreground, and preparing to loose two batarangs, one from each hand. In the background, a Joker playing card bearing more than a passing resemblance to the Joker, Weeps Blood. More a modern symbolic poster thing than a signifier of the interior, but good nevertheless. It was written by Grant Morrison with art by John Van Fleet. I don't know how covers are that great. So, covers are right, innit? I don't like it. Do you know? No. Why not? Batman is. is Batman, Batman looks like he's dancing. I know, he's, Batman looks a bit off though. And everything, it just looks too empty. And the, the bat emblem's crap. Oh, he, he does that quite a lot. That's not a bat, that's Nightwing. It doesn't have the jagged edges, it's not a bat, it's just a dove. It's what is he, dove man? <laughs> it's bat-ish. <laughs> it's bat-ish. Bat-ish really? man. Bat-ish man. Oh look, something just broke through the window, it's bat-ish. I think I will become bat-ish man. No, it was well, a bat. Then you have a, a half-transformed man-bat called man-bat-ish. <laughs> Clown at Midnight, it begins at a funeral by the Red Hook Dockyards. Old allies of the Joker, all in attendance, drop dead after placing the flowers, red and black, on the coffin. The Batman arrives too late, but there, in the reef, a playing card mocks him. The card with no numbers. The sign of the Joker. The flowers, Batman realises, are genetically engineered to release a short-acting toxic venom in aerosol form. He then pays a visit to Arkham Asylum, where the Joker is still locked up after being shot in the face by a Batman impersonator. He has undergone massive surgery and electroshock treatments, and is currently undergoing speech therapy with a specialist, a specialist named Jane Wiesagjek. The Batman tells the Arkham Doctor that Wiesagjek is the name for the Cree Indian trickster god. In other words, Harley Quinn. In the Black Brothers department store, Sheba and Solomon prepare to marry. They had come to Gotham when the Joker was hiring henchmen with odd congenital conditions, but when the Joker, tired of his ringmaster from hell phase, they looked out, secured a modelling position with the bohemian elite of East Gotham Village. Sheba knows Solomon is dead, though, when the pretty lady with the hat full of Christmas bells and the red and black checkered suit hands her a wedding bouquet of red and black flowers. The Batman meets with Commissioner Gordon to discuss the case. There has to be a pattern. With the Joker, there always is. He enters a meditative state, the Nervkalpa Samadhi, to puzzle it out. Having made strides, the Batman locates Harley at the apartment of the real Jane Wysapjek, who is rotting under the floorboards. The Batman tells Harley that the Joker is changing again. He has no real personality, Harley, the Batman says. You know that. You wrote the book, Dr. Quinzel. No real personality. Just a series of super personas. Mr. J is putting the past to rest, Harley says. And Joker Day begins at midnight. Then she becomes a whirling dervish of red and black, manages to elude the Batman, and threatens Sheba with deadly flowers. The Batman torches the flowers and the building, giving Harley the opportunity to disappear as the red and black blossom are consumed by red flames in black smoke. Are we banging you over the head yet with the red and the black motif? He leaves Sheba outside as the word comes down. The alarms at Arkham are blurring. It's 23.40. At Arkham, the Joker manages to escape, killing the orderlies with his own toxic blood that he himself had developed an immunity to over these long years. 
Removing his bandages, he surgically alters his own face into an even wider smile. Harley, Harley, Harley Quinn. Harley, Jay, apparently, Hardy. <laughs> Harley arrives and informs Joker that Batman will soon be there exactly as planned. The Batman arrives, but reveals that the true plan was for all of Joker's previous henchmen to die, including Harley. Red Hook, says the Batman. Black Brothers, La Maison Rouge. It's a picture of a checkerboard, like you. Harley refuses to believe, but as the Joker grabs her and pulls back an old shaving blade, she pulls loose and breaks the Joker's arm. The Joker forgives her, but insists she looked more like he does as he holds a blade to her face ready to carve a real smile into those cute, pudgy cheeks. Harley tells him to do it if that's what he really wants. The Batman leaps across the distance, taking the Joker down, and they fight. You can't kill me without becoming me, screams the Joker, and I can't kill you without losing the only human being who can keep up with me. Isn't it ironic? Batman confronts the Joker at the entranceway to Arkham. He has to put this dog down. Now, I could never kill you, the Joker cries. After all, what's my act without a straight man? The Batman puts down the Joker with a single punch. As he staggers to his feet, Harley arrives. You gotta stop ignoring me, Mr. J, she says before shooting him. Don't you love me no more, she cries, as the Joker is taken back to his cell. Do I need to ask why you picked this one, with it being a part of the Grant Morrison Uber epic? Uh, I'd say it's pretty important to the Joker, because it points out all of his different personalities and creates a new one that is kind of, well, would be important until the New 52 reboot. It's, yeah, it's a very, it's a standard Joker story. Yeah. Which I was quite surprised with from Grant Morrison. Other than the fact that this is a prose comic book, yeah. rather than a comic comic book, there is nothing wacky or out there about this issue. No. It's a standard Joker story, complete with standard Joker tropes of murdering his old henchmen and wanting to reinvent himself and Harley Quinn getting it wrong spectacularly again. Hmm. It's, there's nothing Morrison-y about it. But there's a lot of Morrison-y things in there as well. Yes, there is, and we'll we'll point them out as we go through Especially the notes. Especially his, his writing style. Yeah, it's very definitely him, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> well, we'll get to that. We've, we've got a lot of notes on this one, because it's, you know, it's a Grant Morrison story. So The story opens with the phrase, the rain goes clickety-clack-tack, and ends with the phrase, clickety-clack-tack replies the rain, which, along with the title of the final chapter, The Unbearable Inevitability of the Bat, Man and the Joker references the cyclical nature of the conflict represented in, amongst other stories, The Killing Joke. This is the first of many such references to past adventures. Given Morrison's reading of The Killing Joke, that it culminates in Batman snapping the Joker's neck, I presume this is a deliberate nod. Could be. What do you mean, could be? I, I was laughing at it begin and ending with clickety tack tack what, be- being mirrored images and, and then I heard Kevin Smith shout out metal yeah like he didn't know he didn't know what mirrored he, he couldn't understand Grant Morrison saying mirrored story <laughs> but, but no else killing joke killing joke begins with rain yeah ends with rain mm. yeah so that's very definite homage to killing joke one of many we've had many joker henchmen over the years and we've seen many get killed 
yeah. primarily in this season of episodes <laughs> that we've done. Uh, but the opening two pages are probably the first time we've had the henchman's point of view on what working for the Joker is actually like. You gotta keep him laughing, boys, one of them intones, because when the laughing stops, the genocide starts, and the genocide starts with you. It also has a lot of personality to his henchmen that you've never had before. Yeah, it does. It does. The first two pages are almost entirely the henchmen attending yeah. the funeral of Bozzo the Clown. Because you feel sorry for Peanuts in this. Yeah, Peter Peanuts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did feel a bit sorry for him. Quite sad. I liked Peter Peanut. You, you even like Bozzo as well, considering he's dead. Considering he's dead before the story starts. <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty neat trick, isn't it? As with all good Pulp Fiction with a central mystery, Morrison plays fur with the reader. The funeral has the first of many references to red and black. Did you get that, lovely listener? <laughs> the very colours that will allow Batman to piece it all together at the end. It was one of these great moments where I, as a reader, actually did laugh out loud when Batman announces how we put it all together, because it did make sense. Yeah. When he tells Harley Quinn how he's pieced it all together, you're going, all right. And unlike the red and the black motif, yeah. that was rather subtle. I quite like that. I thought that was quite good. Well, it's uh, kind of important towards um, R.I.P. as well, in the grand scheme of things. Something else that's important to R.I.P. Yeah. In the second chapter, titled The Night and the City... Morrison describes Gotham with the reds, yellows, and hot purples, which are also the colours of the Batman of Zurinar's costume. Yeah. Coincidence? Probably not. No such thing <laughs> in a Grant Morrison story, is there? No. It's all interconnected. So everything's connected. <laughs> Everything happened. Which is his philosophy on the stories, isn't it? It's, it's funny, though, he never actually uh, did the Rainbow Batman in any of his stories. Did he not? No, he I would have thought that would have been an open invite to it. To I think, I think Rainbow it, Batman. there might have been a, a reference to it, but it was never a... Never a main thing. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. The Batman says the clowns killed at the top of the story are the boys of St. Genesius. St. Genesius of Rome was the patron saint of actors and comedians. There's probably a lot more references in this that I didn't get. These are, these are the ones that I did get. The conversation between the Batman and the orderly at Arkham is, is very funny. Hmm. Down on Jollity Farm, the chapter is called. And Batman largely treats the man with utter contempt over his opinion that the Joker is capable of change. There is a little part of me that thought this was a little out of character for Batman. Because his entire existence is built around the idea that people can reform, hence Arkham. Yeah. Hence him constantly arresting them and putting them away. If he didn't believe they could change, why didn't he just put a bullet in the head? I mean, obviously then he's not Batman. Uh, I suppose if he were to be cynical about anyone's ability to change, though, it would be the Joker. Yeah. He may think there is a possibility Two-Face can reform, or the Penguin, not the Joker. I, I thought Batman was pretty funny in that. My bleeding heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He basically says that the Joker's pretty frail and all this surgery is very traumatic for him. Yeah, and the Batman's like, my bleeding heart. He's very dirty Harry in this. He is, yeah. Very dirty job that comes along. I see a man run down an alley chasing, <laughs> chasing a girl with a big grin in his background. <laughs> Figure he is now collecting for the Red Cross. Morrison litters his prose with red and black imagery, even when he doesn't use the term red and black. He contrasts the Batman's dark costume against the foundry glow, which in the art is depicted as red, and in Arkham he references black water and some liking it hot, hot normally being depicted as red. Again, these are just a few of the many, many red and black references in this particular issue. Does it have any relevance elsewhere? The red and the black. Yeah. It's just towards R.I.P. <coughs> Who is it? 
Yeah. It's it's all gearing towards his Uber story. And the checkerboard thing. Yes. That's kind of important as well. Is it? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. They get into Arkham. I suppose we better give it full full coverage, haven't we? Yeah. They get into Arkham and the Joker's blinking and Batman says he's swearing at you, Doctor. He would have to be blinking like a nutter to do Morse code swearing. I, I, I don't think he was swearing. I think it was just Batman taking the mix. You think Batman was just funning the guy <laughs> yeah. in Arkham? The Batman was having a joke at the <laughs> Arkham Doctor's expense. Yeah. Alright, fair enough, I'll go with that. <laughs> uh, Jane Wysakjik, yeah, I don't know, I'm butchering that pronunciation, the speech therapist whose identity Harley Steele's graduated from the Rose Bruford School. Rose Bruford was a trained actress and verse and speech teacher who founded a unique drama school that unified theatre practice and drama education into one curriculum. So now you know. I looked that one up. Okay. I didn't know that one. Well, I don't get with that name. The one thing that bothers me with that story is that name. Rose Bruford. Because that's how Batman works out that it's Harley Quinn, right? Yes. Because of no, what why, that No, why is that Jack? I thought you meant Rose Bruford. All right, no. Yeah, why is that Jack? That's how he works out it's Harley yeah. Quinn. But Indian trickster god. They, they do say that Harley stole that name from someone else, meaning that's an actual person. Yeah. So if Batman was wrong, that could have led him to an innocent person. You know, that's actually a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, Jane Wysak Jack was a real person, wasn't she? Yeah. You have just unraveled <laughs> a Grant Morrison story. Mind blown! <laughs> well done! If someone could do it. Congratulations! Well, you. you know, that is absolutely right, yeah. He, he twigs it and he goes, that's Harley Quinn. And it also mentions he says it as though you have to be stupid yeah, to not, to know, not that. know You're yeah. absolutely right. So Jane Wysak Jack was a real woman. So if Batman shows up at some innocent woman's house, he's going to feel like an ass after yeah. that. Yeah. Not as clever as you think you are, are you, Batman? <laughs> After taking the mick out of that poor yeah, Arkham that guard. poor Arkham guard. Again, he was probably just funning with it. Probably, yeah. I would imagine. Black Brothers Department Store ruined in an insurance fire. <laughs> the imagery of red and black just positively drips from the page, doesn't it? The Batman drops into a nerve ikalpa samadhi meditative state. Again, I had to look this one up. According to the internet in Buddhist philosophy, this occurs when one acknowledges everything as one and therefore perfect so as to intuit the perfect reality of everything. Really? Yeah, I can go with it. Really? Yeah, because they did set up... All is one and all, one is all. Yeah. Come by our... They set it up in 52 when he went to Nanda Purba. It's not like they were just pulling it... Out of his hat. Pull, pulling it out of his LSD ass. All right, okay, fair enough. It, it had been set up for a few years. Apparently the Batman does this to study the, the patterns in the Joker's madness. Yeah. <laughs> Which isn't as good as in JLA when Jeff Johns... Not Jeff Johns. John Johns altered... You know, he can, he can transform. He yes. Can his shape. He changed the shape of his brain... So that it was the same as the Jokers. So they could they were in a maze. Right. And there was no it was all dead ends everywhere. So what he did was he changed his brain so it was like the Jokers that he was crazy and he saw everything like the Joker did. So the instead Just of Just by changing the shape of his brain. Yeah. And so instead of a, a, a maze, it was a, a, a clear path. He just walked forward and they were out of the maze. That's amazing. It's very funny. <laughs> Commissioner Gordon references the killing joke. Yeah, well, was the, um, the circus master from hell um, not a reference? A killing joke. It could be. It could have been a killing joke reference because he did have all those funny little henchmen in that one, didn't and he? It was in his circus, yeah. Thematic sequel to the killing joke, do you think, that? It could have been. Well, it's, it's Morrison. He, he loves Alan Moore even though he hates him. 
It's a very Batman-Joker relationship yeah. between Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The list of things the Joker finds funny include... <laughs> this is hilarious. Blind babies, landmines, AIDS, pencil cases, brunch, geniuses suffering brain damage, politics, sombreros and Batman. And that's not all of them. No, no, there's, there's more later on. They're mixed into it as well. Yeah. It'll just be like his stream of consciousness. Yeah, all of a sudden he'll just he'll have something else that he finds funny. Yeah. Some of them were amusing. <laughs> In a very, very sick kind of way. And for some reason, in terms of prose, I did like the line, the mosquito landed on the moon white hand and settles there like a NASA landing module. Mm. That was a very evocative line. Yeah. I'll, I'll give him that. What's the story where he says he, he, he... There's another list of things he found funny and the, the Children's Crusade is in there as well. Is it? Yeah. The Children's Crusade, the real yeah. thing, or the comic book story. The real thing. Right. I don't remember where that one was. Because I remember there being... I can't remember where it's from. So is that a reference to another story? I'm not sure, because I, I don't know where it's from, but I remember that being in one of his lists. And if it wasn't this one, it must have been... It's not in this one. Yeah. All right. Because I did find a couple of references, and I mentioned them later on, but I didn't get that one. Yeah. But like I say, it's a Grant Morrison story. For every reference I found, there's probably six more that I didn't. Probably, yeah. I would imagine. For When Batman mentions that Dr. Quinzel wrote the book on the Joker, he means literally when she was Dr. Quinzel, noted psychologist. The idea that the Joker has no personality of his own, rather than a series of super-personas, is from Arkham Asylum. Either that or he's Roger from American Dad. <laughs> yeah, I guess if, he's, if it's to Arkham Asylum, that links all of his work together. Yeah, Arkham Asylum weren't very good, though, was it? It wasn't, and you don't need to read it in, as part of his Batman run. Is it? Does he consider it part of his Batman run, no. or does he just think it starts with Batman and Son? Right. Okay. Or it, it starts all the way back with Jet, with Animal Man, even if you you know. Well, so you consider his entire DC oeuvre to be one big tapestry? Yeah, right. because his Batman run leads into Final Crisis, and Final Crisis is essentially the culmination of everything he's ever written for DC. Even though he carried on doing it after that. Yeah. An infant, infinitesimal, what's it called? Not infinitesimal. What's he doing? He's got one more miniseries on the bile for him. What's it called? Oh, for DC? Yeah. Oh, Multiverse. Multiverse. That's an epilogue spin-off of Final Crisis. Of course it is. Yeah. Hey, do you think it'll ever happen? I, I, we'll hold it on hope. Oh, yeah. If, if Frank Quitley's got most of his artwork done, then the deadline should be coming up soon. <laughs> if Frank Quitley's done his art. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> There are a couple of lines that set up Morrison's whole take on the Joker. His remarkable coping mechanism, which saw him transform a personal nightmare of disfigurement into a baleful comedy and criminal infamy all those years ago, happily chuckling to himself in the garage as he constructed outlandish Joker-mobiles, which gently mocked the young Batman's pretensions in the satire years before camp and new homicidal, and all the other Jokers he's been, now struggles to process the raw, expressionistic art brutal of his latest surgical makeover. Bit of a run-on sentence. A little bit, yeah. That's to be said. And there are numerous lines of dialogue from previous issues, some of which we've covered in this celebration, which is why I found them. They are, they can't keep me here, I know a way out, and you see I hold the winning card, which were both from the first Joker story in Batman 1. Right. That's why, because we, we only just recently read it, haven't we? So that's yeah. why I spotted that one. You're in my power, Batman. Ho ho! I could pull your mask off now. The end of your reign. I could even kill you, but I won't. Ha 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 ha! Let him live! Is from Batman 67. <laughs> I had to look that one up. 
He's so amusing when he tries to match wits with me. <laughs> it's from Batman 11. Take a look. We resemble each other, is of course from Batman 251. And I'm loony like a light bulb battered bug, is from The Killing Joke. Aren't I just good enough to eat, is from Morrison's Arkham Asylum. Stop, stop, stop me if you've heard this one, is from Batman 614. And I expected him to blow into the Smiths at that point. It does seem a bit precious of Morrison to quote his own work as part of that lineup, but, you know, whatever. He rewrote it, I'm sure he, that's an excuse. Yeah. If you can't quote your own things as a writer, then... Alright, fair enough. I'll go with that. The Thin White Duke of Death is how the Joker describes himself, referencing David Bowie, and Morrison's propensity for including music in his work. Yeah. The Thin White Duke of Death. I think Bowie could have played the Joker on film. Uh, maybe 20 years ago. Mm. I doubt it now. I think he's getting on a bit now. Yeah, maybe if they did uh, Return of the Joker... Oh yeah, maybe. Oh, Dark Knight Returns. Although they've just done it as animated films, they're not going to do it live action, are they? Which is a He just wants the goddamn Batman to get the goddamn joke! Is an obvious nod to Frank Miller and Jim Lee's all-star Batman title. I couldn't tell if it was a nod or acknowledging that, that it was a little bit of a piss tech. Could be... Could be both. Yeah. Couldn't it? Could be both, could be neither. Batman putting all the clues together and pointing out that it ultimately signified a red and blue checkerboard, which meant that he planned to kill Harley, was actually really well done. Mm. I, I did actually think that was quite clever. Harley's reaction is right on the money, as she realises that she may love Mr. J, but he will never love her, at least not the same way, because yeah. he's constantly trying to kill her. And where would the act be without my straight man? Highlights the Joker's entire relationship with yeah. the Batman. Well, what's funny is that is it points out that everything the Joker's saying, it writes it like dialogue is always speaking it properly, but it does point out that because of his, well, what's happened to him, he's not talking properly, mm. which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, he and can't. carries over into R.I.P. All the way through R.I.P., he can't talk properly. But what did he do here? Carve himself an even bigger smile? I think so, yeah. I didn't get, I didn't understand that. I didn't yeah, understand yeah. why he did that. I just assumed he couldn't talk because he'd been shot in the head. Uh, see, I thought, well, he can't talk throughout this entire issue because he's still undergoing speech therapy. Yeah. So, which was a result of being which shot. Which was a result of his being shot. Yeah. And I do like how that, it, through R.I.P., he is bat guano. He's it, literally insane, but he can't talk and he's animalistic and all that. He's, but, quite, he's bat guano anyway. But then, later on, I'm not going to ruin it for you because it's it's a bit of a plot twist no, no, no. later on when he shows up again he's all he's, he's a fine upstanding gentleman is he and do we ever learn how we get that one uh, or is it just nah, it's because it's an act right okay fair enough uh, I sat down and mapped out my thoughts on this issue before doing the research into the minutiae of the story and its subtext and references, of which there are many, because this is a Grant Morrison comic. My initial reaction was that, for the most part, I did actually quite enjoy this. It's a delightful off-concept issue that, to me, brought to mind Denny Neal and Marshall Rogers' prose story, Death Strikes at Midnight and Three. At its core, and if this was stripped down to a standard comic story, there's not really a lot to it. The story is basically Joker decides to reinvent himself again, undergoes extensive plastic surgery, which he performs on himself, and has decided to completely cleanse his past, killing off all his old henchmen, including Harley. That's pretty much the plot, isn't it? 
Yeah. It features a number of nods to past Joker stories, the killing of his henchmen from Joker's five-way revenge, the flowers with Joker venom, a riff on laughing fish, and even the Batman referencing Harley's theory that the Joker has no personality of his own is a callback to Arkham Asylum, a graphic novel I didn't like very much. Why Morrison decided to tell this as a prose story is unknown, but it's, it's a pretty good gimmick. And Morrison is to be commended for giving us a compressed storyline, essentially a complete four-issue arc of a normal comic book series in one issue. Thinking about it, that could be why he did this in one issue. Maybe he just didn't want to spend a four-part arc on this. The prose is typically Morrison, so much so that I could hear him as I read it, and it is lyrical and elegant, if a little purple at times. Although with a Joker story, that seems somehow appropriate, and maybe knowing Morrison, it was deliberate. For Morrison, this was pretty linear, and the clues all played fur with the reader. His take on the Joker fits in with the story he was telling, and his own philosophies. There's a couple of Morrison-isms. He references that with all the cops in gas masks and a dead dwarf, plus Batman, the Gotham City Police Department resembles a fetish club. Plus, there are his obsessions with meditative techniques that expand the mind. But this felt like a Morrison trying to write a standard pulp thriller, and he does do it quite well. Some of it felt like Todd Browning's movie Freaks. The art, however, was god-awful. If the idea was to conjure up memories of the aforementioned prose story, then the artist needs to be as good as Marshall Rogers, and John Van Fleet is no Marshall Rogers. In fact, this story didn't even need the art. It offers very little to the reading experience, and when I did notice it, it was just to look at how bad it was. It reminded me of that old, fully computer-painted graphic novel called Digital Justice from about 1989-1990, except back then it was state-of-the-art, and here it looked like ass. Yeah. It wasn't necessary, was it? No. The art was completely irrelevant. I, I think it's John Van Fleet who did an issue of Batman Incorporated. And was that good? But no. <laughs> well, well I, I wasn't. No, but yeah, but no, I wasn't but. big of it. But it wasn't bad. It was decent. It did the job because the st- it was a very Tron-like story. It was set inside a computer. Right. So it's forgiven for that. All right. Fair enough. What did you think about that one? I'm not really all that sure. You know, you picked it. I know. I, I picked it because of the importance that I thought it had on the Joker. Right. But I do really like it, but I, I think it might it might be a bit too pretentious for its own good, to be honest. You're saying this about a Grant Morrison story? Yeah. See, I was reading that and I was thinking it's flowery and purple, but I can't say I didn't enjoy it. No, I enjoyed it as well, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. You know... No, I, well, if, if you're an average Batman, Batman reader, yeah. not only are you going to be put off that it's a prose story... Which most people were. Well, yeah, well, I've got a couple of notes but on that. But then the fact that it's a flowery, pretentious prose story. So basically what you're saying, if you're not a Grant Morrison fan, this ain't going to win you over. Yeah. It's like when we covered that issue of All-Star X-Men. Which I thought was god-awful, because it made no sense. Because I chose the wrong issue to start you off on. I All think right. this is also the wrong issue to start someone off But I had no trouble following this, even though I've read very little of Morrison's Batman. But you can argue, though, I've got a pretty good grounding in the Batman and Joker. Yeah. And for all of your pretension that you're saying... Yeah. Which I wouldn't say, actually. I wouldn't say it was pretentious. I would say it was flowery. Mm. I would say there were, there were passages that were very overwritten. Especially the the second chapter of the Batman yeah. looking Gotham. But I didn't not understand it. It yeah. told Astro it's it set out 
to tell a story with a beginning, a middle, and end, as even as part of his larger arc, and it succeeds in that far better than Final Crisis did. Well, it, it does hold up quite a bit, working on different levels. Mm. Like, did you know that one of three Batman impersonators shot the Joker? No. Did it matter? No. See? I just know he's in Arkham because he's been shot. Did, did you know the greater importance of red and black on the larger no. story? See? But so within this story... It, the red and the black is the clue that Batman puts together that tells him he's actually planning on killing Harley. So it works on different levels. So that's like what that, I'm yeah. saying. I read this as a single issue and it worked. I read that issue with X-Men as a single issue. I didn't have a goddamn clue what was going on. Yeah. I don't know. I think it just depends on your where you are as a Batman or a Grant Morrison reader. I just read this as it's another Joker story in a long list of Joker stories that we're reading to cover on the Joker for a Joker birthday season. Yeah. And on that level, I actually thought it worked quite well. But see, even I put it off as best as possible. Why? Whenever I reread Morrison's Batman, I go, oh god, it's the prose one next. I can't be arsed reading this. See, I, I didn't dislike it. I think it's much too big of a jump from the Batman and Son story arc. Wow, we have done a complete reversal. The father becomes the son, the son becomes the father. I'm not saying I didn't like it, I'm just saying there are parts of it that I don't like as much as his other stories. Alright, that's fair enough. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a jump from Batman and Son, which is a really cool, balls-out action story to this. Right. See, I do wonder if it, because it falls right smack in the middle of a comic book run, where is this in the trades? Is it traded? Yeah. Because I would imagine well, it's quite an important part of the story. Yeah, it is. But when it came out, when Batman and Son finished, wasn't there a stand-in story arc? I, I don't by remember. a different creative team? No idea. Don't remember. I think there was. All right. But that's not included in any of the trades. Because I can't imagine reading this as trade is a pain in the ass. Uh, it's, it's fine, actually. Is it? Because yeah. as a regular comic, you can put it open and leave it open while you're drinking or whatever. It's a trade paper, you have to keep the trade open. Now I've got it in the hardback, it seems fine enough, yeah. Alright, fair enough. As Michael pointed out, though, reactions to this issue were mixed. <laughs> Some of the complaints that this wasn't a comic, it was a short story, that there was too much to read, <laughs> that if they want to read a book, they'd pick one up, are too stupid to take seriously. I can understand people being surprised by this issue. But to complain that something you have bought to read actually makes you read seems like complaining for the sake of it. One particular criticism I felt was wrong-headed was on the I Hate Grant Morrison blog spot. Now, I grant you the story is set out in the title of the blog, but the main complaint the writer had was this had no action, stating, if I wanted to read a long novel with no action, I'd read The Hunger Games, which is pithy, but not entirely accurate. The last three pages of this story is nothing but action. And Morrison, to his credit, does a decent job with it. A lot of writers can't write action. But then again, if you're going to go out and write a blog of all the reasons you dislike one person, yeah. maybe you're, you're going to overlook things just yeah. for the sake of complaining. Yeah, see, that's my thing with it. I mean, I have been critical of him before. I'm not a subscriber to the cult of Morrison. To me, he's just another comic book writer. He's like yeah. Peter David or Tom DeFalco or Mike W. Barr. He's somebody who's some of his work I like and some of it I don't. Mm. But yeah, the story set out... If you're going to write an I hate Grant Morrison blog, then obviously you're going to write of the stuff that you hate. Yeah. But to criticise it for something that even a casual reader of his work like me can actually say, that's actually not a valid criticism... I think you're undermining your own argument. Because let's be honest, if you want to write a high, I Hate Grant Morrison blog, there's plenty of ammo out there without making stuff up. Yeah. 
there's plenty of stuff you can pick up and go, this is awful. But uh. to actually to actually criticise this for not having any action in it when it plainly does, yeah. if you've read it, maybe like maybe by that point he was just getting bored. It's entirely possible he didn't read it. Yeah, uh, because um, there were more balanced criticisms out there. But one of the the most prominent that I saw was I saw that this was prose. I read the first page and I couldn't be bothered reading the rest of it. Now that's lazy. Yeah. To be honest, if you're going to critique something that you've not read, then quite frankly, you shouldn't be critiquing it. And the thing with that is, it does act like a chapter in an overall story. So skipping a chapter just because it makes you read, you're missing out on a lot more. Yeah, I mean, the, like I said, some of the more balanced criticism were to be expected. Yeah. Because he is trying something different. And some of those criticisms that the prose is a little grandiose, some people would even say pretentious, yeah. are criticisms you, as a fan, has just levelled at it. Yeah. And I, I think I said it's a bit purple, but I didn't dislike it. I didn't read it and think this doesn't make any sense. It made perfect sense. Yeah. It shows that when he wants to, he can write a story that has a beginning, a middle and an end, but isn't obvious, that actually has a detective mystery at it, that when Batman spells it out for you at the end, you as a reader are sat there going, all oh, right, that makes sense. Well done, Batman. Yeah. It's, it's not... I mean, the red and the black imagery is a little bit bang you over the head with it. Yeah. But Batman puts it all together in such a way to say, no, it's not just red and black, it's the checkerboard pattern, mm. and that's what gives him the clue that Harley is the target. That's the bit that I responded to as being a bit clever. Yeah. I'm not going to say the constant references to black and red didn't get on me tits a bit, <laughs> because they did. Yeah. But for the most part, I've got to give him full credit for trying something different with this issue. Mm. I think it works very well within the confines of what he's trying to do in this one. Yeah. Wow, we've just done a Grant Morrison comic that I liked more than you did. Well, it's it's not that I disliked it, it's just that he was trying to do something different, but it didn't work out as well as maybe he wanted it to. Right, see, I wonder then if I've come at this from the point of view of, all oh, right, he's picked the prose issue... Because yeah. that was my initial reaction. Oh, he's picked the clown at midnight, the prose issue. Oh, and so, you complained all the way through synopsizing it. Yeah, I did. It was a bitch to synopsize. <laughs> I've got to be honest. But I went into it with none of the baggage of the Morrison stuff, because I've not read it. Yeah. And I went into reading it for this show, knowing it was the prose issue. I wonder how many of these complaints are uh, they picked it up off at the stands, expecting a comic... Yeah. and got a prose issue. So I suppose I am coming at it from a completely different angle. Mm. So coming at it from that angle, I wasn't disappointed with it. I quite enjoyed reading it, to be honest with you. Yeah. thought it was all right. Anyway, that's it yeah. for this week. We have decided that we can't really cover Dreadful Birthday Dear Joker and completely skip the New 52, given that one of Michael's all-time favourite Joker stories is a New 52 story. Yeah. Death of the Family. So we're going to expand, expand sorry, this little celebration of the Joker's 74th by one more week. And next week we're going to cover Death of the Family by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. Unusually for Michael, he's not making me cover any of the tie-ins. I didn't like the tie-ins. Excellent, good. <laughs> Finally seeing sense, are you? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> 
When we cover Night of the Owls, that will be covered. Oh, Jesus. When we cover Night of the Owls, it'll be a six-month mini-series. <laughs> it'll be great. It will, uh, yeah. Okay, you can do the heavy lifting <laughs> on that one. Alright, thank you very much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this. We hope this last half an hour or so was a pleasant surprise. Yeah. As we, we essentially seem to have swapped positions on something. That's what I love about doing this. Mm. You never know what you're going to get. You never know when something's going to tickle your ivories, do you? Yeah. And something's going to, you're going to, you, the big surprise for me with you was Silver Age Superman. Well, you sat and read all of that and was like, yeah, it's really good, this. <laughs> Where I thought you were just going to tear it a new one, and you didn't. No, I, I liked it. And then I've just read a Grant Morrison prose story and came away thinking it was, <laughs> I've come away solving the mysteries of the universe. Whereas you've just read the uh, War and Peace and thought it was a simple adventure novel. <laughs> We will see you next week for the final part of Dreadful Birthday, Dear Joker. Goodbye. Goodbye. infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show has not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously.
New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. And we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>